everyone. Welcome to In Conversation with Lisa Burke. And today I'm really happy to introduce to you Cecile Summers-Lee, a voiceover artist, copywriter, translator, IMDb listed scriptwriter, published poet and author. Welcome, Cecile. Hello, Lisa. It's so, so good to be here. And it's wonderful to have you here. Now, you were born in the Netherlands, raised in Luxembourg. You attended the European School, returned to the Netherlands to study English literature and linguistics at the University of Leiden. You created your own agency for writers and translators in Amsterdam, but, and I'm quoting you here, Cecile, missing Luxembourg's unparalleled internationalness and the five languages a day diet you returned in 1993. And now you work with IP Luxembourg just above us here at RTL Today. You write, translate and adapt commercials for radio, television and cinema. And of course, recently, all of our listeners will have heard you hosting the Linklater's Magenta On Air event focused on the power of voice. And that's what we're going to try to focus on a little bit today. The the beauty, the importance of voice and how it interrelates from the spoken word to perhaps the musical word and also, of course, the written word. Delighted to be here. Voice is the, is the one thing that never stops fascinating me. That now, all is voice. You know, we talk to each other, we talk on FaceTime, we talk on Zoom, on Teams, on podcasts. We just talk. Talk, talk, talk is all there is because we can't hug, we can't see each other, we can't meet. So voice will have to do it for now. And you have the most beautiful voice. I think of you as the Joanna Lumley of Luxembourg. (laughs) You have the most exquisite, velvety voice. Did you always have this voice or did you try to work on it? Well, actually, I think I don't have a good voice. When I'm in a pub and I'm talking to singers, because my husband is a singer and his mates are singers... My voice just comes out and drops straight to the floor, heard by no one. So my voice, I think it's a very soft voice. My voice doesn't carry. It does carry with a with a microphone. So I'm glad my voice found a microphone or microphones found my voice. Have I always had this voice? I imagine I have. As a child, I used to go around and ask people. I was I was always interested in languages and other languages and foreign languages as a little child brought to Luxembourg at the age of one and a half. And I remember desiring to speak like the French and desiring to speak like the English and wanting to sound like the Germans. So this is something, yes, if you ask me, have you always been that way? I think the answer is yes. So you've had an excellent ear then to be able to think about how the other languages sound. And I think you speak at least five. Yes, I like to say I speak seven, but the seventh one is Swedish and I'm working on it to make it a proper seventh. Oh my goodness, this is... (laughs) No, but that's part of going to the European school, you know. French lessons from day one as a six-year-old, in my imagination, in my memory, we had to stand up behind our chairs say, bonjour, je m'appelle Cécile, and sit down again. And as far as I can remember, this was all we did for the whole year. But at the same time, we were listening to the French teacher going about her lessons. So one day you wake up and you open your mouth and a French woman comes out. And I think this goes with all the other languages. You know, you just suck it into your body, into your into your fibres, into everything. Is there one language that sits more with you. You're Dutch in origin, but your English, and it's what you studied also, is so much a part of you. You've married an Englishman. Indeed. (laughs) 
Who do you feel, in which language do you feel most yourself? That's a brilliant question. And I don't know. The answer is I don't know. But yesterday, something was happening and I swore. And then I think the little Dutch girl comes out. I do swear in Dutch, although my brother and I, my brother lives in Germany and to all intents and purposes has become German. We said, because we've learned driving in Luxembourg, when we swear in the car, it's in Luxembourg. They say that the language that you count the coins in your hand in, that is the language, that is your real language. Or if you write down a number, and I probably do that in Dutch. So there's probably a lot of Dutch still, but English is a second mother tongue, I think. And with your brother, which language do you converse with him? Um, well, we've always used a mix So we go from Dutch to German to French to Luxembourgish and imitate. And as children, my father was an organist, played the organ. And I have since learned that organ players are very good at improvising. And he was very good at playing Bach and then mixing it with little Dutch children's songs or Dutch Christmas songs at Christmas. There's always been a mix. I think the middle name of our family is Mix because my sister was married to an American and lives in Brussels and her sons speak French. My brother has two children in Germany, so they speak German. My children speak Dutch. So when we're all together, I mean, there is not one language that everyone speaks. So we find it quite all right. But now as I've as I'm growing older, my languages used to always be really neatly stacked neatly organised, like in a in a cutlery drawer, you know, the French and then the German. But now, as I get older, it seems as if the divisions between the languages are sort of sinking and it's all one mess. And I open the drawer and I'm looking for the French knife and there is a German knife only or, or the word that my brain is fed is not the one from the language I'm currently speaking. And some people think this is very arrogant or it sounds like, oh, 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 sorry, I speak all these languages. I think the brain gets used to having all this stuff at its disposition. A gift that so many people in Luxembourg have and you've carried to the highest degree because you use it in your work, in advertising every day. You're writing in all of these different languages, speaking in all of these different languages. So tell us a little bit about that where it has to be succinct, it has to be sharp, it has to be concise. How do you choose the words in the variety of languages you are writing in and not only writing it down on the page, but then saying it? Mm-hmm. Well, interestingly enough, um, most of my work-related writing is in Luxembourgish. And I don't remember who it was that said that language reflects a nation's worldview And Luxembourgish tends to be rather limited. It isn't, and it is. I remember one commercial I had to translate, and it talked about champagne breakfast. And I asked my colleagues, so how do you say this in Luxembourgish? And they say, and you think, come on, you must, there must be a word. I mean, you have champagne breakfasts. It isn't uncommon to have a cremant with a, a morning coffee. Yes. <laughs> but, but to have breakfast is coffee drinking. So is it a champagne, a champers coffee? No, no, no. So you're searching for the equivalent. You're searching for the equivalent. So in my mind, often when I have to translate into Luxembourgish, I get told, no, we don't say that. No, we don't have that. No, we don't do that. So I think it's hard. And to be succinct, I do a lot of adaptations. Then we'll get a French commercial, a 30 second one. But if you translate it, when you translate it into Luxembourgish, 
you find you need 33 seconds to say it because you need to, to describe things. It's different from Dutch, for instance. Dutch will gladly embrace words, you know, Swedish, English, any word. What I experience is that you have to not only go through different languages, but different cultures to bring something. And then we get these really sexy French commercials and then you translate them into Luxembourgish and then suddenly they sound a little less sexy. (laughs) (laughs) So, of course, of course, I mean, you know, and then maybe sometimes the French client will say, well, this is not what we, what it sounded like. Well, this is what we sound like. I can say that I've experienced the same. I don't have your prowess and language skills, of course, but I sometimes do voiceover work and I often see the scripts for the French or the German and the English. And I sometimes change the words as well to say, no, 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 we would say it like this. But I often then hear the French voiceover artist or the Luxembourgish or the German And they all have a different sound. Of course they do. And I find it ever fascinating to hear the differences. And obviously also when we're looking at scripts, the French will often be the longer one compared to, let's say, the English Mm -hmm. or the German. So I Mm -hmm. find this endlessly fascinating. And it is, like you say, a problem when it comes to those seconds of time when you're doing advertising. But also sometimes you have to translate something which isn't part of the culture because we all know these languages, we will be told, but can't you say it this way? And you have to tell the client, no, you can't. This is not what Luxembourgers say. You may well know that there is no word for I love you in Luxembourgish. Oh, I did not know you that. You say, froh um, mit <laughs> you know, I'm happy with you, or I have you gladly. I'll gladly have you. But, um, or, you'll do. Uh, you'll do. <laughs> so, and then, and then the younger generation, like the generation of my colleagues, they will gladly say a schliebendisch. But the older generation or the RTL watchdogs will say, no, 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 that, that is German. We don't, we don't say that. So I don't know. I wonder what is taking so long for Luxembourgish to open its arms and say, sure, we'll say, we'll say, why not? You know, language is an ever moving, changing thing. And in Chaucer's time, people were oh, aghast at where the language was going. But the language is going somewhere and and it will continue to go places. Perhaps Luxembourgish people want to really guard their language because it isn't spoken by so many people globally and they're probably trying to protect, well, the French are also notoriously good at trying to protect their language, especially not having English words in it. yes. And that is laudable. I think both visions, both ways of looking at language are laudable. You can say, no, this is not how we say it. We do not say, ich liebe dich, you say, and that's it. Live with it. And then how do you adapt from the words on the page to the voice, the changes in the tone? Because when it comes to advertising and those little uh, promos, the voice carries so much emotion. Mm. So two questions. One is that you are a voiceover artist. How do you think about carrying the emotion into your voice in the various languages? And secondly, how do you direct it into another person's voice? We had a list of seven points from a man whose name I forget. And it said, people, not voices. So rather than read 
the text that you have there, imagine that you are someone telling this other person what the text says. So what you try to do is to bring it alive, to bring it to life rather, to animate it with your voice, which is hard in a way that, you know, you'll be praising one vacuum cleaner one minute and then you'll be praising a coffee maker and then you'll be praising a car. But you just have to be, believe in it, you know, and I have to convince you that this car is the most fantastic absolutely brilliant oh god where to end where to begin car so you just have to put your soul in it how do you think about pauses within your speech ah very interesting question i was i was told yesterday by one of our good speakers that the word er uh, can be suppressed so pauses in your speech are you saying the pauses where you think or pauses when you read from a text that is written? I mean, what I'm doing just now, as I was thinking. <laughs> I mean, the points at which people are not speaking, the gaps between the words and sounds. Well, he said, keep your mouth shut when you're thinking. Don't say, um, we know that you're thinking. It looks much more intelligent if you're thinking while not talking <laughs> and and just leave the pause. But of course, it's very dangerous to leave a pause in radio and pause on radio. You don't want pauses. You want um, a continuation of sound. Thank I've you very much. I've just filled in your gap there. <laughs> I must say my mother is fantastic at filling the gap. <laughs> I was once told many years ago on television by my boss at the time, he said the pauses are when people tune in because they think you've forgotten what you're about to say. So they'll actually stop what they're doing in their tracks and they'll start paying attention. So for him, the pauses were oh. were very valuable. But you're right, on radio, on a podcast, it's quite a different sense. People might think, oh, something's gone wrong with the, true, true. With the editing. And as to directing voices, which I also do, you know, when we get a commercial and we have to adapt it into Luxembourgish, I want people to convince me. Because, you know, some people, especially trained speakers, come in, take the piece of paper and read it or take the text and just read it. And you think, no, I'm not buying it. So what I sometimes do is I turn my back to the screen or to the window between that separates the, the, the studio from the recording part. And I say, I'll turn back when you've convinced me. And that works because they what they then want is they want to reach me. They want to reach my ears and they want to reach my brain so much so that I look at them and I say, yes, good. That's really you. clever because, mm. of course, we're dealing with an audio device here. And so by looking at somebody, it's putting a veneer, it's putting a screen on top of that auditory system. So that that's a fantastic thing to think about. Looking at advertising more generally, you've been working in it, I believe, since 2003. Mm -hmm. It's a long time. There's been huge changes, a lot more online now, a lot more on social media. How have you seen the world of advertising change? And more fundamentally, do you believe in it? Because I know that you've got a very strong grounding in prose and poetry as well, a very much deeper sense of the literary word. Well, that's a, it's a great question. Um, it pays the bills, obviously. <laughs> it pays the bills. But the thing is, the client is king in advertising and therein lies the rub. 
because the client wants to say, we've got parking in front of our door. We are open from X to Z o'clock. And and you think, yeah, but don't, you know, we want to touch people, you know, touch my heart and then you'll, you'll be talking to my wallet. But they don't see that or they, they think, well, I'm buying 30 seconds, expensive 30 seconds, and I want to say as much as I can, whereas the sensible thing to do is to say one commercial, one message. Don't say we've got rice, we've got pasta, we've got potatoes, we've got all these things. No, just give me brilliant pasta and I won't need the rice and the potatoes. Too much is just too much. So I've seen advertising change in that sometimes advertising is more has become more daring, but basically it's still the client saying, this is what I want to say. And basically it's a red flyer. These are the points we need to, to bring across and this is how we're going to do it, which is a great shame. I think we've all listened to Amanda Gorman reading that poem, Walking Up the Hill, and I believe the title is um, at the at Biden's inauguration. And suddenly the world goes, oh, poetry, wow, yes, yes, wow. And say it a little differently and you'll touch people's hearts. You know, all the bland stuff, the exceptional conditions, maybe I'm digging my own grave here, but it's conditions exceptionnelles. Yeah, well, what does it mean? If they're all extraordinary conditions that you're getting on cars, then none of them are. Absolutely right. And and you're making me recall also when it comes to news reports, there are roughly two minutes, two and a half minutes long. And always in my mind, I had no more than three messages, no more than three messages. And again, my old boss would say to me, you tell the listener once, you enlarged in the middle, and then you tell them again. And really, that's true because we're absolutely bombarded yes. at the moment. Our focus is not unilateral. It's not one directional. And so if we have something going on in the background, we can't take in more messages. <laughs> no. And, and this is also what we try to tell the client. Don't cram these 30 seconds full with stuff because the ear will just tune out. It's too much. It's... <laughs> no. You know, I don't know. I don't know what you said. Sorry. But if you tell me one thing, maybe that one thing will stick. And then moving on to your other passions, you're a published writer and poet. And you've just mentioned Amanda Gorman's poetry at Biden's inauguration. The difference between prose and poetry, again, with poetry, perhaps akin to advertising, you're looking for the word. You're trying to source the best sense for that word, that metaphor, simile. How do you go about writing? And is that your downtime? Or would you like to flourish more in that? Well, I got into trouble for saying I was interviewed, you know, in this Meet My Colleagues series here at RTL. And I was I got flack for saying, well, basically, um, work is my hobby and, and writing is my, my passion and my, my real thing, my real job. I am forever thinking if only I could give the energy that I give to my job, if I only I could give that same energy to my writing, I'd be a multi-published author, And novelist. what stops you? Is it the fact that it's not a necessity each day? Is it the fact that it's not a salaried job, so to speak? Indeed, indeed. And when I have to do a translation for someone and there is remuneration at the end, then I just do it. 
go on and finish it because I had promised to send it to someone. Now, with the novel, I know that my writers group, Tony Neumann Park writers, they are waiting for me to finally finish that novel. But, you know, they will love me equally if I don't. But I will not love myself equally. I I often try to imagine myself on my deathbed and I will hate myself retroactively for not having written that novel. So I will do that. I will do that. Let me... Why don't I make it... um, uh, well, you're saying it publicly. Apparently, that's one of the motivational yes, stances one has yes. to do in order to achieve something. Well, I've I've done it publicly a couple of times. So, um, <laughs> so you're, um, <laughs> <laughs> you're promising our RTL Today readers. Absolutely. I, I Cecile Summers-Lee, hereby promise the RTL Today listeners that this time next year... They'll be able to buy your book. Correct. <laughs> I'm going to hold you to that. Good, good. You're reminding me of Charles Dickens and his little chapter by chapter. Yes, Yes. instalments. You could publish it somewhere. Well, you've just given me a brilliant thought. I could could just write it and then read the raw and dripping new chapters on a podcast. That is an excellent idea. Now that you're such... I know that podcasts are to come with IP. Yes. Absolutely holding this space. Okay, there's this wonderful adventures ahead. You mentioned your writing group. What sort of support is there for writers here in Luxembourg? Ah, well, there is a lot and there is increasingly more. There is something called Writers Who Talk. It's a group that was started by, oh, names, I forget names. Um, uh, Maybe you can help me. Um, She's... um, Jess Baldry. Jess Baldry. So there's a group called Writers Who Talk, And it was started by Jess Baldry and they are launching a platform and I think they're launching either on the 30th or on the 31st of January. And people can go there and sign up and become a member and there'll be lectures, there'll be gatherings online, there's a critique group. So actually there is a lot to do for writers. There's a great, great community out there. I must just underline, is this writing in English? It is writing in English. Are you meant for all the writers? Well, I mean, obviously, for our audience, we're talking about English writers, but I'm sure there are many of our listeners who can speak a multitude of languages like yourself. So just also to ask, do you only write in English when it comes to your prose and poetry? I published a children's book with the Beige in Amsterdam in 1997. And then they said, you know, just write, write more. And and I suddenly went off Dutch. I don't read much Dutch. And although then they said, your Dutch is it's interesting, it's fascinating. It's, there's something we can't put our finger on. So... Spiced no. by the six other languages that you have at your fingertips. Well, yes. I mean, and they mix, as I said, you know, in the, in the drawer, in the cutlery drawer, it mixes and... and, and fornicates and creates new stuff <laughs> I don't know but um, yes no my my favorite language for writing is absolutely English it is yeah and you did study this at the University of Leiden yes when it comes to English 
There is such a wealth of accents and turns of phrase, even within one English-speaking country, not alone between countries or nations. I was listening to a poet this morning, actually, on a podcast. Very good. Uh, Mary Carr is her name. And she was talking about her Texan upbringing and what her parents would say. And they're so witty. And it reminds me of my Irish ancestry, where the turns of phrase are are quite poetic and longer and I think quite musical. So when it comes to the English that you've absorbed as a European with this hat of many languages, where do you feel most at ease with the English? Ah, well, I'm a chameleon, which is, um, I adapt to whatever's there. So I find myself, when 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 I talk to American friends, I find myself going... Oh yeah, that's that's really cool. Um, um, and then I cannot the chameleon me, linguistic chameleon me, cannot talk to an American and say, "Oh, that's a lovely shirt you're wearing." So, so I just take whatever's there, you know, whatever sticks to me or whatever um, makes my chameleon language accent thing change colour. And I was thinking the other day that I do cheat myself out of fat accents. I mean, I could have a fat French accent. Why don't I just, you know, just for fun, speak with a, a, a French accent, accent and, uh, and uh, where, yeah, yeah. Uh, or, I don't know, pretend that one is someone one is not. And I think that is a fun thing about languages because I think I sometimes feel like a Dutch person just faking it. I'm faking all of it. You know, I'm faking... Well, aren't we all? That's aren't life. We all? Aren't we all? <laughs> but you, you, you had that question, you know, what is the, the real you? What, you know, stripped of everything, what does the real you speak? But we all change our, our skin tone, our chameleon colours to blend in with the situation we're in, whether with family or friends or, or yes. new acquaintances or work colleagues. It's a constantly changing conversation we're having. And I always think, as you said, right at the top of this conversation that we're having in the last year through COVID, the only connection we've had, and it's why Linklater's also chose The Power of Voice through a radio show to host their conference. We've only had the spoken word through video conference calls or audio conference calls. It's quite difficult it's ever present in my mind for those people who are just quieter souls. And always my heart goes out to those people who haven't yet found the power within them to be able to speak what they feel. And I don't know if you as an expert, as a professional in this field, have any tips to help those quieter people for their voice to be heard. Oh, wow. Wow. Well, this is a little anecdote. The day I was born, they burnt my bottom with a hot water bottle, Oof. a steel one. Which the, this a steel? Was the, this was the new thing. You filled it not with boiling water, but with boiling oil, because the boiling oil apparently stayed hot longer. And they, I was born at home, like most children in Holland at that time, and they wrapped it in a, in a tea towel and didn't properly wrap it. So they put it with me in my little crib and... Apparently, my mother says, you cried for hours. And then I think, well, you know, did you did you <laughs> bother to come and see what I was crying about? So... Um, I can't you know. <laughs> My mind is this vision of steel, hot water bottles, 
Well, not hot, hot oil bottles. I mean, the temperature Seething that... Seething oil- hot steel burning. And, and I was so lucky that it burned my little bottom because that was the, 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 there was the most fat there, that part. And the doctor said, well, you know, apparently it was a big burnt... Um, uh, bottom, bottom, <laughs> and and they—it is, uh, is awful. And and they told my parents just you know she'll be fine, but just you know when she starts walking, just make sure that no muscle was damaged. <laughs> okay, <laughs> but this I tell I tell you this because I was screaming apparently for two hours. Is this my mother's exaggeration? I don't know. I doubt it. If you've got a steel oil, <laughs> indeed, she said she, you cried yourself to sleep. And I, I, and and when I asked her, she said, "Yeah, but you were fed. You were born. You know, you were you were not lacking anything." No, I wasn't lacking anything. Thank You're you clearly not the first child. I was the last one. Ah. <laughs> so, so a, a shrink once told me, "You will have to do so much to be heard." And I do have that feeling that, you know, all this talking I'm doing is to be heard, you know, to make up for little me, little one couple of hours old me screaming her little lungs out for saying, listen to me, listen to me. So, um, yeah, what do I say to people whose voice um, is silent? Well, talk to yourself, talk to the mirror and maybe record yourself and speak up, speak up because we all have things to say. My general rule is go where you are cherished, not where you are tolerated. So find find someone who tolerates, who cherishes you rather than just says, hey, you with a little mousy voice, shut up. Something like that. I don't know. I, w- I, would, I would want to say, or, or if you don't feel like talking, write. Or if you don't feel like writing, draw or make something. That's beautiful. I love that phrase about go where you feel cherished and not just tolerated. It's like the heck yes situation. (laughs) And finally, you have a very strong feeling that the voice is the sound system of the soul. It's this wonderful phrase that you sent me and I absolutely believe it too as a a musician, as a singer. It's such an integral part of a person's being. Mm -hmm. Again, how does one hold that back. Sometimes people dress that up in different layers, they cover it up. Or should we become more open? We have become a much more open society. I mean, if <laughs> if you look at Instagram or any other kind of social yes. media platform, you'll see people share all sorts of things. So when you say voice is the sound system of the soul, what does that mean to you? Well, I don't want it to mean that, you know, if you've got a beautiful voice, you will automatically have a beautiful soul. But um, I think it does reflect what's going on inside. I I think when we first talked in another constellation, I, I had just heard Elisabeth Badinter on the radio and she was so excited about, about an empress that she had written about, Marie-Thérèse, and, and she was so cerebral and her voice came just purely from her head, not from her heart, not from anywhere else. So her soul was obviously completely excited, completely cerebral, completely excited about all these data and all these things that we knew. And what she was saying was, was very compassionate. What do I really mean? Well, yes, say, say, what you, say what you feel. No pressure. We haven't actually explored 
the art of translation, which I think, again, feeds into things you've said about advertising. Mm -hmm. You're trying to find the cultural reference points, the phrases, the right texture of language. But in that time when you actually had your own translation agency, was there anything there that you learned that has stayed with you? Well, it's that it's that very famous quote, poetry is what's lost in translation. So you always lose something in translation, although sometimes you add, the translator will add something, like Haruki Murakami is translated by Jay Rubin, and Jay Rubin turns the Japanese, I don't know what the Japanese is like, but he turns it into a fantastic English, like the way William Weaver turned Umberto Eco's Italian into something stunning. So the translation can add or subtract. I think there also soul enters into it. You know, somebody's written something and another soul adds something from their own experience and life experience and linguistic experience. I think there is so much within us and that is something I try to tell myself and that sometimes clashes with the advertising that, you know, I am convinced now that everything we need is within us. So we don't need the new pair of sneakers. We don't need the new car. We really don't need. And we we know this deep down. Save that from your clients. <laughs> yes. <laughs> everything is within us. Search inside everything, yourself. Yes, yeah, search inside, your, inside yourself and speak to yourself. I do believe in speaking into into little recording devices. When I was running, I haven't been running lately, but I would always be fed ideas for the novel. And I used to go running outside here in the, you know, the into the forest and um, I would be fed the most fantastic plot points. So I've got a whole list of of recordings in my iPhone. And it's like, okay, okay, now I've got it. And you hear birds and you hear cars driving. Okay, so so actually, actually, Jack is is not, you know, and and maybe I should publish that and um, see the development, work that into the runner's guide to novel writing. But I believe in talking, in recording things you say. And sometimes some people say, you know, I write I think it was Joan Didion who said, I write to know what I think. So maybe you can also speak to know what you think. But we are, as children, we are often told to say, that's stupid or don't say that. So don't censor yourself. Just start talking the way we are talking now. And suddenly you come up with thoughts and somebody asks you a question and you think, oh, yeah, interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And then we all get to a higher level. Cecile, it's always a pleasure to hear your voice, to see you and to speak with you. And I know there's so much more from you. I want you to end by telling us your very famous tagline for the answer phone machines about people not being available. I would love that as a final line. The person you are trying to call is not available right now. That's just so superb. I could listen to that all day. I'm sure some people have that on repeat. Cecile, thank you so much for your time and we can't wait to hear more from you and a potential future podcast coming up quite soon with chapters of your book. Wonderful.